Hi there, this is Claire Cooper joining you from the Tin Sheds Gallery on Gadigal land inside the Amplify Story Resistance radio takeover of which I am one of the wranglers. I'm about to chat to the very awesome Wendy Bacon who has been an inspiration to many. Uh, some in informal in formal institutions such as when she was leading journalism at UTS but also for many just as a ferocious advocate and amplifier of social justice movements since the late 60s. Uh, Wendy has been on the front lines uh, of many vital urgent issues and continues to be into her 70s. So we're going to have a chat today, particularly about an article that she found after coming along to the opening night here. I hope you enjoy this chat with Wendy. It's an absolute honour to be with you today, Wendy. I hope that's not um, too much to start off with. Uh, no, it, it's really great to be here and um, just to walk in here and see how bright it is and on air and great big red letters and go online and see all the podcasts and everything and the old documentaries. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's... So Wendy and I have been involved in a few campaigns together um, and initiating the um, Community Environmental Monitoring Organisation, which you can find a bit more about. Um, Online yeah. under um, pollutionwatch.org.au. It's just coming together. But we have um, 50 low-cost air monitors out there across Sydney. Wendy found or remembered an article when she came into this this exhibition at the opening night and I'll, I'll hand over to you Wendy to tell us about it. Well I came on the opening night and walked in here and, and, and I saw initially some of the early community radio videos which I love and um, remembering some of the posters like early crystal sets and gay waves and all of that because I was not actually involved in those things but I was around then and then my mind actually had a sudden sort of flash that we were actually going to start what was called pirate radio. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is really um, sort of unlawful radio outside the permitted parameters very much, the idea of it was. And then I remembered that, um, that I think that in 1971, when we were publishing underground newspapers, we probably had articles about pirate radio. So mm. I went home and uh, looked through, through my archives and amazingly, because they are a bit of a mess, I stumbled on this double page article, which was literally a guide um, which was published in early 1972 and was literally a guide by some physics and engineering. It was one particular person who, to this day, I don't know who it was, um, but who wrote a, a double-page, A3 pages guide to how, if you wanted to, you might set up a pirate radio in Australia. And then I remembered, like, we were really seriously thinking pirate radio is definitely the next step. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, it didn't actually happen because of other things that happened eventually around community radio. Yeah, well, the article talks about um, not only initiating your own, but also how to how to stage interventions in existing um, transmissions, right? Well, that was always one idea, and, and that was an idea that um, I'm 
don't know if it ever actually happened. I think people have done things like run onto the set of Q&A or, <laughs> or put themselves in particular positions um, or maybe, yes, break through a police concord and then get on major television. But there was also very much an idea that, that one of the ways, and it was all a very technical thing, that, and I'm not a technical person, but the idea would be that you would transmit um, on um, and you would get onto a band, transmission band, where you would say at the end of the Channel 10 News, you would come in with your message like, you know, we're going to occupy Richard Miles, the Defence Minister's office tomorrow to protest about um, AUKUS and th their policy on Israel. So that is the sort of thing that was imagined. I think it's really important to probably sort of think about imaginings right, like rather than actually always doing it. But, um, but actually, just going back to the actual article, it canvases different ways that people might do this. And, and going back to um, we were all aware at that stage, I would say from the 1960s onwards, although we didn't know everything about what was happening in Europe or anything mm. like that. I mean, the information flowed very slowly then, but people were aware of a station called Radio Caroline, which was off the coast of the UK. But even before that, there was, I think, Radio Sweden and, and one other as well, which um, broadcast from the water outside the actual jurisdiction. Yeah. Um, and uh, the whole thing with Radio Caroline, it was really like, you can't imagine sort of how conservative the BBC or radio or the ABC was back then. So anything like even sort of popular music, let alone sort of underground rock and roll or something, like the Rolling Stones, you know, could not be broadcast. <laughs> so they actually, uh, Radio Caroline, so, so that was something that we, we knew about. Mm. Um, and in this article, um, it canvases um, the possibility in Sydney, and they actually, some physics and engineering students at UNSW built um, a, um, uh, well, had a transformer and built the necessary equipment, and of course you had to have the generating power as well, and organised a yacht owner who was going to go um, 12 miles off the coast. Now, to understand why that was necessary, you need to understand that the um, Postmaster General's Department and the Australian uh, Broadcasting Control Board actually it was against the law to broadcast anything without a licence. Yep. You know, I think it probably still is. It still is, yeah. Um, you can get temporary licences. Temporary um, licences, yes. Yeah. So it's all, it's very much a thing about control and licensing and, and so to to be able to do something on your own terms, you absolutely had to think about how were you going to get yourself outside that control. So the idea was that this person who owned a yacht um, was going to go what we called then 12 miles off the coast, which might be about 30 k's, I think, yeah, off the top okay. of my head. And so, so quite, quite a way away. Quite it's a way, yeah. So it would have been a long way out past you know, Sydney Harbour. Yeah. And then when he saw the size of the equipment, which was really big and really, really heavy, um, and sort of understood what was really at stake, he balked and wouldn't do it. Yeah. So at the time when the article was writing, that was sort of all still in flux. But then there was a different idea. There was the one where you could 
interrupt a mainstream broadcast and do your message, but there was also another one where you could set up an antennae and this is the one that I remember having serious talks with people about where you would get a van and get the equipment and then you would have your antennae transmitting. Now, there was a couple of problems with that. One was that you could be seen, <laughs> potentially here you are in a van with yeah. an antenna going up. And to get around that was the idea of a false roof, okay. which I suppose would look a little bit like a camper van with a roof on, but they didn't have them then, so probably that wouldn't have been too good. But then the other problem was if your, um, if your transmission hit a transformer, then it was blocked. And anywhere like where there was big buildings had transformers for heating and cooling. So, so that also meant that you probably were going to have limited, very limited transmission. Of course, you had to find your audience first. Yeah. Um, like I've got no doubt that if at the time it would it'd been possible to do it over a sort of somewhat bigger geographical area, there would have been a huge audience immediately. Yeah. Because um, when in 1970 we were, um, I was editing the student newspaper at UNSW and we were challenging, outright challenging the censorship laws, which are in every aspect, you know, of cultural and social life at that stage. And uh, at the time we were publishing maybe about few thousand student newspapers, but because of the demand from outside the university, um, we had to up the print run. And then we had oh. people coming to the university and saying, can I have a bundle and I'll go and distribute them and sell them for you know, 10 cents each or something. Yeah. And so, so our circulation went up really quickly because it's just this thirst. So you can imagine if um, back in 1970, if someone had have got hold of the technology and been able to get around the law, it would have become quite big quite quickly. Yeah. So I'm sure they were very anxious to keep the lid on it. Okay. Mm. There were, however, two attempts, and to be honest, um, they ring a vague bell. Like we're talking about 53 years ago, 52 years ago, um, but there was... Two, two uh, small, sh very short-run stations in Melbourne. And uh, I think both are very interesting and I'd like to do more research on them now. Mm -hmm. I've mm -hmm. discovered them. Uh, one, <laughs> they were both in 1971. One was at Melbourne where they set up in the Students' Union mm -hmm. and they were broadcasting draft-resistor radios. So, I mean, I think all this was very much happening in a context where, like... And I think that's the way you're presenting this here in a way where communication was very much embedded in all the other activities that you were doing as a form of um, challenge or resistance mm. or thinking in different ways. Mm. So the draft resisting thing had its own momentum, yeah. you know, that... Um, and then the other one was also at Monash University and that was similarly you know, about things that were happening, including the draft at that time. This is 1971, before the Whitlam government got in in 72 and eventually abolished the draft. So um, they were both shut down by the federal police. I mean, they were not going to let that go on. And, and it would be interesting to know what happened to those people. Like, did they, presumably they went before the court. Yeah. Did they plead guilty and get a fine? Or did it all just disappear when the Whitlam government got in? May, I mean, that's the sort of history 
that you know, would take a bit of time to dig up, mm. I guess. Oh, one of the things that we found out through this is that there have also been charged, like people have been charged even in the last five to ten years ar around pirate radio transmissions. I think there was a, a young guy in Wollongong who, who copped a $2,500 or $1,500 charge for transmitting. I wonder whether he... Yes, well, I mean, one thing, again, um, was that there was ham radio, which was amateur radio and that still exists today mm. and that was again very much technical people it sort of came out of the um uh the first world war i think with telegraph communications and that sort of thing so after the war in fact my own grandfather mm. who was in the post office got a amateur radio license um and um that all exists but i think it's very much um uh, contained and culturally very different. But it's interesting that this person was charged, and maybe he was not a ham, an amateur licensed person. Like, they're very, very restricted yeah. licenses. Yeah. Um, and actually, in this article, this 1972 article, it strongly recommends not going near ham radio people because they would be very conservative yeah. so whether that came out of the link with the pmg because and and post office communications because that was a very conservative scene too so anyway i mean not to say that everything in this article is necessarily correct um because um you know it's just someone writing an article, having a go, there's a little bit of sense of humour in it. Yeah. So who knows, maybe there was sort of gorilla ham people out there for all I know. Yeah, I picked up the avoid, avoid ham um, message there, but also yeah. I thought there were two particular funny calls to, uh, not necessarily calls to action, but saying, you know, make friends with your, your friends in physics and engineering to make this happen. Or if you've got a friend with a yacht or a cop <laughs> who might look the other way, like... <laughs> yes, it's very out. much that... Um, uh, it, it sort of, and I think that really that sort of thing of just you might have to make friends with this person <laughs> or go around that route or do something illegal there, but don't worry about it too much. Um, it's a little bit of sense of humour mm. about it, but it's also very much um, the spirit of the times, yeah. I think, yeah. because things. I mean, for it still at this stage, and it was soon to break down later in the 70s. But you know, we would go to movie theatres to see like. A European film, as we saw, very, very sophisticated, and uh, there'd be sort of jump cuts in it, or even other films would be jump cuts, and you'd sort of sit there knowing you also had to get up for God Save the Queen, you in the late 1960s as well, oh, so wow. it was a rather stifling atmosphere, but you sort of know these jump cuts are there. So, one of the things we did in Taranka was publish, I mean, it was just not like the real thing at all but we'd get the, the screen little images of the film tape and actually publish them so you well, know the, the spirit sorry, the, cut, the parts that have been the parts cut, that were being cut yeah, yeah that was one thing we did and all of that i think goes back to that thing of just the stifling conservatism but also being prepared to challenge mm. authority and and the ability of authority mm. to set the limits yeah. and i think it's very relevant to our own time because, I mean, this morning I read that there were students at Sydney University were not going to be able to have a pro-Palestinian meeting and I'm yet to find out if that could even possibly be true. Mm -hmm. um, but, 
you know, people, you do have to, particularly in times, I think, when uh, conservatism is on the rise, even if so is radicalism at the yeah. same time, you do have to be really sort of watching for the way behaviour can be constrained and people stop challenging, because it is, it is confronting. Um, and, I mean, looking back... Like this person here is warning, like you might get arrested. I maybe just could read this last paragraph. Yes, please. Um, so it, it, this just is the last two paragraphs. Remember also it is possible to extend your range by sending a signal over the telephone lines to other transmitters over town or interstate, which will immediately rebroadcast. There are many methods of transmitting in a capital city and not being apprehended, but these methods usually require very small portable solid state gear, which you and your friends could make. Just remember it's against the law and even though it's like smoking pot, that it's good fun. If you're busted, there's plenty of shit. So keep cool and happy broadcasting. <laughs> now, I think that was all, all, that was with that sort of optimistic tone. Like, I don't think anyone was really about to have happy broadcasting sessions. And, and another thing I guess is interesting about this looking back is that the sort of times were changing and there's always different currents happening at the same time. And at the time, when you're embedded in some of them, you don't necessarily see the changes coming. And so this was um, this was published just after um, a major censorship trial in which I was one of the accused. Mm. And people have been arrested in the streets, including a, um, a constitutional lawyer from UNSW, an academic, for just distributing well, very explicitly supportive material in the streets before we were sentenced and but this is like March 1972 well the Whitlam government was elected in November 1972 and that began a whole lot of changes where people began to push the boundaries more within the system mm. so then um, already in 1970 uh, it was called I think 5AW had been set up in Adelaide and that was very at Adelaide University was very much a broadcasting education idea mm. and it of course developed later but it was very within that sort of boundaries and back then education more likely would have been broadcasting a lecture so mm. it was not very likely to be ch too challenging I, I don't think um, but then of course the whole battle for community radio developed and mm. you know fine music stations and ethnic broadcasting these strands started happening but still it took till say 1979 until 2SCR was actually on air at, at the University of Technology and yeah. uh, most of the original um, community broadcasting stations were attached to universities which um, had both its strengths and I think its, its limitations so um, it took Quite a while. Well, eventually, of course, we had three triple C in Melbourne, um, and uh, also eventually Skid Row in Sydney, which always, I think, has been the way I see Skid Row has been different. Is it's always seemed, apart from the fact that it's links with Radio Redfern and giving that access to the station, mm. um, but also the idea that the community can come in. 
And, you know, when you're in a university, it's very hard. I mean, it's great here because the door's open and people could walk in off City Road and start broadcasting. But um, it's, yeah, it, it's how do you... Really, it was that idea of pirate radio and really um, community access radio was really about empowering the community. Yeah. It wasn't about having special people who are broadcasters. The idea was that people had stories or mm. music and they could play it to an audience over the airwaves. Yeah, well, I guess that's, you know, this this show is not just about radio in that, you know, we're talking about those territories or sonic yeah. um, spaces and platforms where people can take their stories or their music to the streets. They're not talking, having to talk to licensed venues or licensing agencies, like with the sound system, like the free parties, the channel parties that are in that docker over there. And it, the, a lot of... The uh, futuring of this, if you like, is trying to ask questions around, you know, what what if we don't have these social media spaces and platforms? Or what if they, as they're showing now, no longer serve us in, in that we're getting on there and just talking to, preaching to the converted? So this, this chat we've had about possibly intervening in platforms that are reaching way more people or a straighter audience. And I, I love in the article how they talk about <laughs> these people are too straight and those people are too straight and maybe avoid these people. But that perhaps in a future um, terrestrial radio might need to be reclaimed or relearnt by activists, advocates, university students because those social media platforms are, have become so over-surveilled, is that the right yeah, word? Over -surveilled yeah, over-surveilled and, yes, over-controlled in terms of access to who is going to be approved. And yeah. I mean, I think what you're raising is, is really um, important because, um, like, I even know now, like, I have been on Facebook, but I'm more, less and less on Facebook. Mm. And I know many, many people of your generation and, and younger generations probably think much about Facebook. <laughs> I think you do it a little bit too, to so promote what you're doing. And that's what I, I still think of it in that way. But I've noticed now that certain sorts of content you just cannot reach. Like I've got 4,000 friends and maybe none of them are seeing it. And that's quite a, a disempowering mm. thing because mm. you think, wow, you know, you just really brings home to you that you don't have you don't have control. This illusion that somehow social media, mm. these sort of, uh, sort of global corporation platforms were going to give us some sort of access that we didn't have before. And the other um, aspect of it, Claire, that I think is really relevant and maybe where internet radio is also coming in, but um, local media has almost closed down. Like in the outer suburbs of Sydney, there really is virtually no media about people's stories. Like one of the things mm. we were doing through community environment monitoring was um, I wrote some articles about a massive landfill site in Western Sydney where there's, how it was for a long period of time, it's better right now, but horrific odours to the point of people like older people who went for a walk each day, not being able to go out, not being able to invite people to your house. Like this, but there was the occasional maybe 10 second grab on the news and Ben Fordham took it up on the right wing radio station 2GB very momentarily. Yeah. But the story 
of it. Just there is no way for that to get told. And, and community radio, of course, is ideally, a or internet radio is a really ideal way to build local audiences too. But mm. I don't know to what extent that's happening in the current very commercialised environment. Mm, mm. Well, if it, if it cost, it, it would have cost us $2,000 to get a temporary licence to broadcast this. Yeah. And we're a university. If you're a, if you're a community action group wanting to raise awareness or keep people informed, it's not, you know, that $2,000 might be, be better spent <laughs> um, rather than setting up or getting the licence before you even got the gear to do the broadcasting. I see the lack of local journalism as a really um, critical issue because I think it's one more reason why people get into a situation where mm. they're just not... Get, like, you can imagine how sort of hostile you might feel or irritated if your stories are never there. Just yeah. like people, um, if certain um, ethnic groups or are excluded, yeah. you know, you never see yourself. But if you never see your own stories, you can feel pretty angry yeah. with, and then you can feel angry with all sorts of people, you know. So yeah. um, the lack of media, I think, is a really um, big issue. Um, once, um, like another thing, just going back to this earlier era, uh, in 1973, um, I was squatting in Victoria Street during the Green Band period. And um, uh, with Ian Millis, who I think you know, Ian Millis, who yeah. was a, an artist back then and still is, um, but very community one, mm. political one. Um, and uh, we all got eventually thrown out of Victoria Street. We had about 100 people squatting there, all in the, um, the cause was saving Victoria Street, King's Cross. So what our first response then was to produce a newspaper. We'd been doing newsletters for the community right the way through, quite detailed newsletters, which anyone could be involved in. And mm. then we did this big newspaper, um, which today still stands as a sort of record of what happened, which if you went to the mainstream archives just wouldn't be there. Yeah, wow. um, so, you know, that was just a one-off and sometimes even one-off communication efforts can be worth it as well. Mm. Um, and they, I don't think everything has to be big scale too. One of the things I really like about what you do um, is people don't worry, is this going to be small scale or is it going to be big scale? Not everything has to be huge. Yeah. Um, another thing I was involved with was um, we, more recently was with Lucas Island, who's from um, Wollongong Uni, and he's very involved in sort of small scale printing presses. Mm -hmm. And I don't so much, and I, we produced a newspaper actually at the New South Wales Art Gallery um, that was interesting using that very old technology, yeah. particular yeah. printer that he, that he had. And, and while I don't think that we're necessarily going to return to that, I think this sort of creation of things, this idea that people can do it for themselves and they can do it on their own terms mm -hmm. is, um, is something that's really worth thinking about. Yeah, well, the, the, you would have been in the tin sheds when this was actually the tin sheds, right, where they're making the workshops where people could come in and everything from, you know, solidarity with uh, land rights campaigners to to oh shit someone came in and stole the DJ gear in the local in the local record store can you raise money like can you make a poster to try and raise money for this so, so um, 
in a way we're trying to nod to or reanimate that feeling in here or maybe even reanimate and suggest that a space like this in a university becomes somewhere where you know the students for Palestine were here all yesterday afternoon pa painting banners and placards for, for the rally really, on Saturday yeah. um, learning about pirate radio uh, there's subtle and non-subtle ways to bring people into these suggesting these platforms in spaces like this um, but there's always also a bit of an edge you know I'm a staff member here I know that, that you know I'm uh, in some ways responsible for for some of the actions that take place or a lot of the actions that take place in this space so it can be a little bit nerve-wracking to do this here as opposed to say front yard in Marrickville which doesn't feel I don't feel like I've got some kind of institutional eye on me there uh, <laughs> so I can to, to people who don't know front yard is a um, non-institutional community research space where you can go in and do residencies for two weeks come in with a question it's a non um uh, oh, it's a it's a space for for sharing ideas and questions and gathering around community issues actually um, where you don't have to produce a particular output to do a residency or something like that I think one of the things that I really like about front yard is the fact that it's um, it absolutely moves beyond the fact that whenever you're in a, a sort of cultural art space, there's got to be an object or something on the walls. And, <laughs> and uh, there, I mean, there is an old library and there is a vegetable garden. But, um, you know, I did a residency there actually briefly when we were doing an exhibition of our underground newspapers. Yes, and and then we sort great. of debriefed there and that was, that was, and there's just not many spaces. I mean, you can't assume that there's lots and lots of spaces for meetings. Like, I was in a group the other day and they're really looking for a sort of ongoing space because sometimes even you've got to pay for council spaces, yeah. not necessarily always. So all this, and I, I really also, um, I was at University of Technology for um, oh, nearly 20 years and, and I really... Um, did a lot of newspapers and magazines with students and um, around sometimes around the idea of hidden stories mm -mm. which is a little bit connected to what you're doing here and and I really um, am glad that I did all that but I also agree with you that you you can you have to have an eye to the institution mm. and um, there was one time when we ended up publishing someone's PhD about contamination of Macquarie Harbour in Tasmania because it had been suppressed by the University of Tasmania. So you can sort of, oh, that was wow. in the 1990s, yep. I think. Um, so, yeah, you, you walk those boundaries. And I also think that, um, I was thinking about this as I came here, actually, that there isn't, a, looking at what was achieved through community radio, and the sort of thinking that informed this Pirate Radio um, article. I think that when you go into the system, there are constraints. When you work within the institutions, there are constraints, things that you sort of narrows your thinking to some extent. Yeah. But at the same time, you also can do things and you're empowered to get things done mm. in a way that is always, uh, can be a big battle on the outside. So I sort of think that the idea of people, you know, maybe similarly inclined, but walking different paths at different times is also a really good one. I don't sort of, I've never been 
I think when I was younger, I might have said, oh, I would never work in university, but you know, by the time I was in my 30s, sort of all sorts of reasons why that, that I didn't think that anymore. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, I think th- th- we had a chat with um, Mim Lyons around climate yeah. uh, climate activism yesterday and we talked about that, eco- or she talked about the importance of the ecology of all those activities as well. Like it's not, you don't say, oh, it's not, it's not an, uh, rallies um, or old, older, more recognisable protest tropes are ineffective. You know, we, we, cannot, we should only do... Uh, stakeholder activism was like they they can't they need they need each other all of them need each other so I'm really curious about your views on what's coming next with something like these these sound platforms these platforms for stories the ones we know the algorithm is starting to really mess with to just send us to the stories we already know or want to hear or even sort of censor the ones they don't want anyone to hear I think that is really even worse in a way yeah. Yeah. Um, where, where, like, I don't think I'm the best person to think about how necessarily to get around those constraints now. Mm. Except one thing I do think is going back to that thought: you have to do it. You actually, and and one thing a phrase that actually he was an Australian author called Frank Morehouse, or maybe he got it from somewhere else. He probably did. Being free by acting free. And even though I know freedom is a bit of a sort of strange notion these days with mm. right-wing libertarianism, but the whole idea, if you want to change, you have to act that change. Yeah. You have to do it. And so even if sometimes that action may not be anything like on the same scale, you have to sort of experiment and see what works and doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and um, with I also think it also relates to ideas about civil disobedience, you know, and civil disobedience can be in art, it can be in music, it can be in anything. It's just like when you decide something is unjust, a law, and should not be complied with, you act to resist it. You know, that's all it is. Mm-hmm. And there's now huge pressure on that as well through the climate protests and Extinction Rebellion and all of that. And I think uh, it's absolutely critical, obviously, that people keep going with that. Now, having said that, I am not the one who's been sitting in Silverwater um, for, like, Violet did, yeah. Violet Coco did, yeah. um, for many days in near isolation. Of course, yeah. some people may do years in, uh, in actual fact. Before you know. her charge was yeah, overturned. Yeah, before her charge was overturned mm-hmm. and she wasn't sentenced mm-hmm. at all. So, you know, I don't want to minimise what that sort of thing means, but, but I also believe that unless people are prepared to take some risks, then things will be closed down. So just on that um, theme... Like, for example, I'm going to a thing in Newcastle, which is um, called part of Rising Tide in Newcastle, and a whole flotilla of kayaks are going to go out and block the port. Now, that could be potentially an arrestable thing, but there could be thousands of people there who can just be there playing music, bearing witness to it, be part of the event. Like, everyone has their limitations and moments Mm. also in life Mm. you know times in life so you know I think that it's so important that people 
Like, I don't think I can go out in a kayak and confront a coal loader. I'm scared of a ferry or Sydney Harbour. But, but I do think I can be there and bear witness and help, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so I think we're back in the, very much in those times at the moment. Yeah, well, it's finding your way in, right? So you look yeah. at the conditions of the context and, and be able to say, what do I, what can I give at this moment or who, who am I in relation to these things? Absolutely. And not necessarily say, oh, I, I can't kayak, so I'm not going to engage in that yeah. at all. Because you'll probably write about the event, is that right? So we, people can read about the event on your blog? Oh, no, on not on my blog. I mean, no, ideally, I would say yes to that. <laughs> but, but no, um, but there is a, again, <laughs> social, we immediately start talking about social media. Rising Tide is on Facebook, it is on Twitter, I'm sure yep. it's on, hopefully on TikTok. Um, I don't use TikTok, so, but, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. so, so all these new technologies, um, I guess the big question with them, how can they operate outside the constraints of corporations who, you know, now, when we were involved in censorship battles in the early 70s, governments were very much seen as the problem. The censors were the government and the police who might kick down your door or whatever, you know. So, but as I experienced being a journalist and then just as a community member as well, corporations exercise private power and absolutely constrain communication. Mm. So unless we think about ability to publish, um, what we want to publish in outside those constraints, I think we're sort of inevitably going to end up in this censorship situation. Ah, okay. And what what are our best tools for fighting that? Um, Well, I think internet, but obviously in a sort of guerrilla way. I mean, looking at WikiLeaks, for example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, that was a moment, and that moment sort of passed. Unfortunately, Julian Assange is sitting in prison, although I did notice this week WikiLeaks published something, but that others did it too, which was a leaked plan from the Israeli government about what the end game is in Gaza and that was very confronting um, but they got it out there and now millions of people around the world have seen it so obviously you need to and now if I was a young journalist and coming up um, I would and this is something that would limit me now in ability to do like a serious investigative story involving security Mm. of sources because you really need to know a lot technically yeah. about how to keep people safe and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But then there's also like the strategic arrests, right? Like yeah. so you'd have, you know, um, if that's well planned, a certain person who is up for being arrested um, to make the loudest noise about the cause. Is that something you have been involved with, or maybe you can't say it on record, but uh, um, look, just looking at some of the strategies of climate activists over the next um, or the last two years and possibly the next five to ten that strategic arrests are a big part of that. Absolutely and and I think I mean one of the things that recently I, I did an article actually I, I, I do now what I do in journalism I nearly always do just voluntary and and I write some stories for City Hub and I wrote one on forestry struggles in northern New South Wales which was a little outside the local newspaper brief 
Um, but in the course of doing that, I interviewed people that actually I knew in the women's movement in 1970, one particular one, Chris Deegan, who is um, very full on, as our other friends of mine, with knitting nanas. Now, knitting nanas is, is really sort of older women who are saying, we, we are not just potentially some of them Chris Deegan was arrested, she locked on. Yep. She sat there in the rain for eight hours and then a long time in the cell as well. So I think the step that she took to do that is really strategic and really important. Mm. However, other knitting nanas just turn up every week outside some corporate building and that is also, it, that's a big slice of someone's life and time. Some of them I know I think are almost full-time knitting nanas. Um, wow. And then they go and they support other protests. I'm sure they're going to be up at Newcastle for the rising tide. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think this idea that it's a movement and you can connect with that movement in different ways is really important. Mm -hmm. And also I think it's really another hopeful thing is there's a lot of energy from younger people, like with the school strikes and that sort of thing. But also, I mean, my generation, you know, I think lots of us are probably healthier in our 70s mm. than maybe our grandparents were. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got the energy to keep making some sort of a contribution. Mm. Yeah, that's that's great. Is there is there anything else you wanted to I mention about the, the article? No, I don't think so. You've got a scab. Maybe we could put it on the web. Yeah, we can definitely share it. Or um, I could put it on my blog and just send you the link the or link, something. The link, yeah, that's possible. Yeah. Because um, I've got the PDF for it. And I think there's a, we can have a print of it here in the Yeah, in, in that, the that would be great. And as well as that, I can maybe... Um, I've got the scan, so I could put it on my blog with a link to the podcast. Yeah, that yeah. sounds great. Thanks so much for making the time to come in today. It was a great pleasure, Claire. Yeah. <laughs>